there is so much to learn as we walk through this together. And, and in Revelation 6 through 19, we are immersed in the great tribulation period, a time in which God's judgment will be poured out upon the earth, and God's judgment will also be poured out upon unbelieving and rebellious humanity. And while the tribulation from a divine point of view, so from God's point of view, will be a period of, of judgment on earth, it will also be a period in which um, the prince of the kingdom of darkness, Satan himself, will be permitted for a short time to manifest his kingdom um, in the realm over which Christ will ultimately triumph and reign. And we've already been introduced to seven seals, to seven trumpets. Today in Revelation 12 and 13, we will now be introduced to three key characters in the battle against God. We will introduce to Satan as the dragon, um, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And these are, in a sense, they're called the evil trinity. The evil trinity who oppose God and his people on earth. And when it comes to this subject, we should remember the words of C.S. Lewis, who, who wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So one is to live as if there's no such thing as the demonic realm, as Satan, as the evil realm or the spiritual world. The other, he says, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So to believe that there's a, a demon in every corner, that there's a devil behind every um, every decision we make, or that we always say every time we mess up, well, the devil made me do it, and all of those things. So we have to be careful in those ways. And he says, they, the demons themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and held a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we have to understand the reality that we live in a spiritual world, and we are in a spiritual world. War, And we need to understand the war that we are in. So I want us to dive in today as we encounter evil in the form of Satan himself, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And to look at this um, evil trinity that Satan himself sets up. And we're going to go deep, and there's a lot of depth here. And I have way more information than I have time to actually get to it. So let's see uh, where God takes us today. But I pray that we'll just press in. Um, in this subject, understanding ultimately that our God wins. So let's look at chapter um, Revelation chapters 12 and 13, beginning at chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to let you continue to be seated because we have a lot to read. And beginning at verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now chapter 13 verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems of its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority on its head seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone who is to be slain with a sword. With a sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray together. Fathers, we dive in today that this deep subject of the evil one and the evil trinity lord help us to at the same time god not ever not ever forget lord that you win that ultimately lord this book is not a book of dualism 
you versus Satan and who is going to win. This book is a book of domination. God, you win. And Satan has no chance. Lord, just show us today, God. Comfort us today. Speak to us today. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these two chapters this morning, John brings together several visions that illustrate the spiritual battle that has been waged, the spiritual battle that is being waged, and that will continue to be waged in our world. And we need to have our eyes reopened today to the fact that everything that happens on earth is part of a cosmic battle that is being waged in the heavenlies. A war that whether we like it or not, we are all a part of. A war that whether we like it or not, we are not neutral in. Every single day, we choose a side. Every single moment, every single action, we choose a side. As one pastor uh, put it, nothing in our lives is ultimately natural. Everything in our lives is tied to the supernatural. Everything in our lives tied to the supernatural. And we need to be reawakened today to our spiritual enemy and his, his plan of using human means in order to deceive And this morning, what we're going to do in our time together is we're going to truly encounter evil as it exists in our world today and through the work of Satan and as it will exist in the days to come through the work of Satan's masterpiece of deception, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And just a reminder from the beginning, don't miss this. Everything that Satan does is a parody of what God and Christ have already done. So Satan is not original is the best way to put it. Satan is not, everything he does is a parody of what God and Christ has already done. Whether it be the crowns he wears, the mortal wound that is healed, his miracles, or his mark. So this morning we're going to go low into the minds and the work of the enemy. And also seeing what it means for us today. So let's, let's go low into the mind of the enemy. Let's begin with our first truth, which is this. Let's look at the animosity of the adversary. The animosity of the adversary or of the evil one or of Satan or the, the devil himself. It begins in verse 2 that says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. And we're going to come back to the first sign in just a, a minute, the woman who's giving birth. But let us begin by looking at this second sign in heaven, a great red dragon. It's great because it has vast power. The color red is associated with death, as we saw back in Revelation 6, 4, with the red horse bringing death. And of course, Satan, according to John 8, 44, is a murderer. He's also a slanderer and a deceiver. Satan deceives, he, or he has deceived angels, and he deceives men. Did you know that Satan is the greatest soul winner in the world today? He's the greatest soul winner there is in the world today. And Revelation 12 shows us how Satan has been battling the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ, how Satan sought to defeat Jesus Christ, and how Satan even defeats or tries to defeat the church today. And in this chapter, we see three pictures of the way that Satan hates or his animosity um, towards different things. First, we see Satan's hatred of the Son of God. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me of chapter 12. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in order to understand this chapter, we must not only identify the, the great dragon as Satan himself, we also need to identify the woman and her child. And this woman is the second um, symbolic woman in Revelation. The first woman mentioned is Jezebel. Then this woman, later on, will be introduced to a great prostitute. And then finally to the bride of Christ. But this isn't just some woman. It's not like the Catholic Church believes that she's the, the Virgin Mary. No, this woman is described with imagery that's used all over the Old Testament, especially in Genesis 37, to depict the 12 tribes of Israel. So this woman, this woman trying to give birth is Israel. And the nation agonized and suffered all throughout the centuries as this nation longed for her Messiah to come, yet Satan diligently tried to prevent it. And this is a picture of a pregnant woman crying out in birth pains, and yet the dragon standing before her, ready to devour this child. And that picture right there, brothers and sisters, explains everything we read in the Old Testament. Everything, everything we read in the Old Testament is right there from Genesis 3 where sin entered the world and God made a promise that one born of the seed of a woman would crush and destroy the serpent. From that point on, Satan sought to prevent this male child from being born. In fact, it was Satan who moved Cain to kill Abel, according to 1 John 3.12. It was Satan who moved Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew baby boys in Exodus 1 and 2. It was Satan who moved King Saul to try to attempt to kill David in 1 Samuel 18. It was Satan who moved wicked um, past Queen Athelia to destroy all the royal heirs of King David in 2 Kings 11. It was Satan who moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews in the book of Esther. It was Satan who moved Herod to kill all the baby boys in the attempt to kill Jesus. But here's the good news. Satan failed. He Failed. This child was indeed born in Bethlehem, declaring that Satan's head would soon be crushed. But don't miss it. Satan kept fighting. Satan doesn't stop just because he knows he's defeated. He keeps going. Satan thought he had uh, succeeded in crushing this child when he used Judas to betray Jesus and hand him over to be crucified on a Roman cross, yet that backfired as well. For according to 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus hates the Son of God, or Satan hates the Son of God, but then secondly, Satan hates the child of God. Satan hates the child of God. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. So according to verse 7, a war breaks out in heaven. Some believe this looks back to the time of Satan's initial fall. Others believe it looks to the crucifixion of Christ. Still others believe it looks to the future and the midpoint of the tribulation. And here's what we know. Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven as, as their home at the original rebellion. However, the Bible seems to indicate that Satan still had some degree of access into heaven. When we get to Job 1 and 2, we see God and Satan having a conversation in heaven about Job. However, this verse points to Satan being cast out 
permanently and denied any access at all into heaven. In other words, Satan and his demons will be banished and barred from the presence of God and from heaven forever. So Satan has been cast out from the throne of God. We read that in Ezekiel 28. He will be cast out from heaven. We read in Revelation 12. He will be cast into the bottomless pit, according to Revelation 23. And he will finally be cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 2010. Meaning, his fall will be great. But, don't miss his present work. For he is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us day and night. And don't miss what that means. If you are a child of God in here, let me break some bad news to you. If you're an individual in here, if you're a person in here, you sin every single day. Bad news. Hopefully, every single day, you ask God to forgive you. Because we sin every day, we ask God for forgiveness. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if God does that, the Bible also says this, God forgets our sin. Cast them as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. Not because he's some old man who is forgetful, but because he has the power to forget. He forgets our sin. So therefore, because God forgets our sin, because he forgives our sin, if after confessing our sin before God, repenting and turning away, if minutes later, a day later, a week later, a month later, a year later, if those sins come back up to us, we can know for sure it isn't God. It is the accuser of the brethren who is trying to accuse us, to stop us, to get us to feel the shame and the guilt and the pain that Christ has removed from us and taken away. Satan is the accuser of the brother. And brothers and sisters, that's why we must know this. We must know this word and what this word says concerning us. But Satan hates the child of God. And then the third thing he hates, he hates the people of God or the nation of Israel. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given or had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. So there is no question how this is going to end, yet Satan keeps fighting. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan will unleash his fury upon the Jews. God, however, will make a place for her during the last three and a half years, giving her the wings of a great eagle that will carry her to safety. And let me give you some bad news, because I know most of us in this room, especially if you're older, you've heard some bad theology here concerning Israel and these wings of an eagle. Many pastors have stood behind pulpits saying, these wings are the wings of America who will protect Israel and protect the Jews and and. Hal Lindsey, the great Hal Lindsey, once even wrote this. Some kind of massive airlift will rapidly transport these failing Jews across the rugged terrain to the place of protection. And since the eagle is the national symbol of the U.S. of A, baby, I added that, it's possible that the airlift will be made available by aircraft from the U.S. We've heard that. Another theologian responded this way. Thankfully... For both Lindsay and other Americans, Ben Franklin failed in his attempt to make the national bird a turkey. Because that would have messed up theology altogether if we were the turkey. And maybe, maybe we are indeed the turkey. But be careful. Don't miss the point here. The point here is not that the United States of America is the hope of the world. 
all throughout Scripture, when wings appear, it isn't pointing to some prophetic nation that's going to come down the road. Every picture of, of wings shows the protection of God. Not us. Protection of God. Listen to Exodus 19. God said to Moses, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Satan hates Israel, yet God protects her. Therefore, the animosity of the adversary, praise God, is defeated by the sovereignty of God. The animosity of the adversary is defeated by the sovereignty of God. So the first picture, the animosity of the adversary, leads us to the second picture, which is the authority of the Antichrist. The authority of the Antichrist. And look at chapter 13 now, the first half of chapter 13. It opens and we see Satan, the dragon, dragon waging his war on the world. And he does th so through a beast rising out of the sea. And the sea is a picture in Revelation of, of chaos and sin just running rampant. And all of this is happening under the authority of the dragon. Just look at chapter 13, 1 and 2. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And verse 2, and to the dragon gave his power and the throne and great authority. And don't miss this. This picture here is a picture of taking us back to Daniel 7 and the nations that were coming. And the picture is that the Antichrist, when he comes, he will be a... Um, an absolute picture of all the evil nations all coming together for a certain purpose, for a purpose to um, lead people away from God. Some commentators see this beast as a, sp a specific person in history. Others see this beast as various anti-Christian governments and leaders who oppress and persecute God's people while leading the world astray. And what we do know, according to John, according to the Apostle John, the Antichrist spirit is already alive and well in the world. In fact, since the day that God told Adam and Eve, a seed is coming, a seed is coming, the Antichrist spirit was birthed that very moment. It has been alive and well. When Christ came, it was the Antichrist spirit who tried to bring Christ down and to kill the babies all, all throughout this picture. Yet the Bible is also clear that one man will be the final, most complete, and powerful Antichrist. The culminating and final one. And just think about the difference between the one who is the Holy One and the one who is against the Holy One. The differences couldn't be greater. One is called the Christ in Matthew 16. The other the Antichrist in 1 John 4. One is called the Man of Sorrows in Isaiah 53. The other is called the Man of Sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. One is called the Son of God in John 1. The other the Son of Perdition in 2 Thessalonians 2. One is called the Seed of Woman. The other the Seed of the serpent, both in Genesis 3.15. One is called the lamb in Isaiah 53. The other is called the beast in Revelation 11. One is energized by the Holy Spirit in Luke 4. The other is energized by Satan in Revelation 13. One submitted himself to God in John 5. The other defies God in 2 Thessalonians 2 again. One was received up into heaven in Luke 24. The other will go down to the lake of fire in Revelation 19, 20. The differences couldn't be any greater. And this one who is against Christ is not only an antichrist, he is the final one. 
And God does not see him as a man made in the divine image. God sees him as an animal under the control of Satan. Meaning this, just as Jesus was God in the flesh, so the Antichrist will be Satan in the flesh with a human body. And don't miss this. According to what we read here, he will come in a political manner. Oh, how, how polarizing politics are, aren't they? Politics have a way of being so polarizing, not just in our nation, but every nation who has the, the opportunity to vote. And we praise God for that opportunity, but this figure will come in a political way, yet may we never forget, don't miss it and hear it again. As Pastor Jordan said from the beginning, politicians are not in control the enemy is not in control. God is in control. And we never miss it. And let me just give a little speech here about the election coming up on Tuesday. Regardless of what happens, whether we hear Tuesday night, whether we hear Wednesday morning, whether we hear sometime in December who our president is, nothing about what God has called us to do as his children will have changed. Nothing. Nothing will have changed for us. We will still be called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We will still be called to pray for our leaders. And we will still be called to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and it bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Amen. And so just think about the authority of the Antichrist. In his authority, God permits this beast to curse his name. Look at chapter 13, 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority. In verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. So the beast is given a mouth by which he blasphemes the person of God. And not just that, Satan makes this great beast a, a great order, a political figure who attracts and draws in people, all the while um, blaspheming and cursing God. Yet God is in control. God also permits this beast to crush his people. Look at verse 7 of chapter 13. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And this is one truth that does not always make sense to us. For God allows the beast to make war against his people and to defeat some of them. Now, we've already seen some of this when we were looking at the churches, that in Smyrna, Christians will die. In Philadelphia, Christians will live. And maybe the thought that we have is, how is that fair? How is it that God allows some Christians to live and other Christians to die? And here's what I know. All of us have asked that question. There's probably been a time in all of our lives where we wonder that, God, why would you allow my loved one to die and let that person live? God, why? Why? And the attitude in which we ask that question depends on whether we believe Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Do we really believe that? If you believe that to die is gain, then what Satan destroys only leads to your delight. God may allow the death of his people, but hear this, God will never, ever forsake his people. God will never, ever forsake his people. And then God permits this beast to control the nations. Look at verse 4 and verse 8 of chapter 13. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Verse 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So this is Satan's substitute Messiah. 
This, this Messiah, will, the Antichrist, will also be healed of a deadly wound, and the people will worship him. Think about this. They would not receive Christ, even the resurrected Christ, yet they will receive the beast. They would not believe the truth, yet they will believe the lie. And let me just pause for a second and say this. I grew up in the 80s and 90, early 90s, and we saw a lot of movies about the tribulation. Read a lot of books about the tribulation, and the problem is most of them, um, i, I got to be careful of my words, most of them are terrible theology. Because here's what they teach. They teach that, and here's what I was taught as, as a young teenager, is that, hey, if I get it wrong and this right, it's okay. I, I'll know what's happening then, and I'll get it right then. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the Bible teaches that those who in this earth had an opportunity to hear the gospel and refused, God will send a strong delusion upon them, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, and they will believe the lie. They'll believe the lie. If you refuse to bow your knee now, you don't get a second chance then. You will have a spirit of delusion by which you will believe the lie and you will find yourself worshiping the Antichrist. Think about this. The world wouldn't worship the Christ, but they will bow their knee to the Antichrist. And what we see from this picture of the beast is that the whole world now and then is divided among those who have their names written in the book of life and those who do not have their names written in the book of life. And let me be very clear. There are many ways to keep your name out of the book of life, but there is only one way to have your name in the book of life. And that one way is still the one way, and his name is Jesus. The only way. And ultimately and thankfully, believers are doubly secured because the book of life that contains the names of believers belongs to the Lamb who has been slain. Meaning, we are secure in the hands of a higher authority. So we look at the authority of the Antichrist, and he has authority, yet we as children of God are in the hands of a higher authority. By which I pray that we would praise God for that. We are eternally secure. We are in his hands and nothing can snatch us from his hands or from the hands of our Father. Which leads us to the last truth, the actions of the advocate. The actions of the advocate. And as the second beast comes out of the earth, we have the completion of the satanic trinity. The place of God is assumed by Satan. The place of Jesus is assumed by the beast and the ministry of the Holy Spirit which is the ministry of pointing people to Jesus, is now assumed by the false prophet who will point people to worship the beast. Just think about this. In verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It, according to verse 14, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It performs great signs. It deceives those who dwell on the earth. And I want to end today by giving you four actions of the false prophet that we see here in the last half of chapter 13. The first thing he will do is he, he will manipulate those who hear him. He'll manipulate those who hear him. Chapter 13, verse 12 says, It, the false prophet, exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. And this begins with a description of the false prophet. He has two horns like a lamb, yet he speaks like a dragon. And the truth is clear. This prophet will deceive. He will look like a friend, but he will speak like the enemy. He will look like a friend, but he will speak like the enemy. And we've already seen that the, 
The word lamb in reference to Jesus appears 28 times in the book of Revelation, but the word lamb overall appears 29 times in the book of uh, Revelation. 28 refers to Jesus, yet one refers to something that is false, the false prophet. And this false prophet will establish a false religion on a world, worldwide scale. He manipulates those who hear him. The second action is he mystifies those who see him. He mystifies those who see him. Look at chapter 13, 13 through 15. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven. So just like Elijah, coming down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. And by the sign that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to an image, to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak. So this prophet, empowered by Satan, will perform miracles, proving, and don't miss this, that not every miracle is of God. Not every miracle is of God. Now, how do you know? How do you know if a miracle is of God or if a miracle is of the enemy? I think in our minds, we, we know because what it produces in us. Does it make us stand in awe of God and worship Him more, or does it make us more self-centered? Does it make us want to um, more self-centered about what we can get from this and, and what it's doing for us? Here's what we know. When our Lord ministered upon the earth, the Jewish leaders came to Him often and said, Give us a sign. Just give us a sign, and we'll believe. And Jesus said, Nope. But this false prophet will say, I'll give you all the signs you want. I'll give you as many signs as you can handle. I'll give you all of these signs. And these, this false prophet will perform deceptive signs that will lead to devil worship. According to Charles Swindoll, blinded by unbelief and sin, the world will easily fall prey to the second beast's deceptive message and methods. Intellectually attracted to him, emotionally drawn by his appealing style, and convinced by his amazing sins, they will voluntarily submit, obey, and worship. So he mystifies those who see him. But the third truth, or the first third action is this he massacres all who refuse him. He massacres, he kills those who refuse him. Again, verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So this false prophet will call for an image of the, the beast to be made. And then he will be given power to make this image speak. And then people will bow down to that image. During this time, one will either be pro-Christ or anti-Christ. If you are anti-Christ, you will live then, but you will die eternally. If you are pro-Christ, there's a really, really good chance you'll die then, but you will live forever. In fact, what, did, what does it say? That those in chapter 12, they overcame, they conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And it says this, because they love their, not their lives unto death. Meaning, they love Jesus more than they love their lives. They loved Jesus more. They loved him more. And then the last action is this, and probably the most misunderstood. He marks all who follow him. He marks all who follow him. Look at uh, verses 16 through 18. It says this of chapter 13. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. 
so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. So the mark on their foreheads or on their right hand is simply Satan's way, again, of mimicking the seal of God that he, poured, that he put on the forehead of his own in chapter 7, verse 2. If you have the name of Jesus and God the Father written on your forehead, it means that they own you, that you belong to them, and you are loyal to the Lord God Almighty. Yet, if you have the name of the beast written on your forehead or on your hand, it signifies that he owns you, that you belong to him, that you are loyal to the Antichrist. And it makes sense that those who set themselves up against God in Christ would also have something symbolically written on their heads or on their hands. Now think about how the church has gone off the rails when it comes to this. I mean, think about throughout the past of the church, everybody, just about everybody, including your aunts and uncles, have been identified by the church as the Antichrist. I mean, it started, it started the, the church in, in Rome here, the, the church would have said, hey, it's, it's Nero. Nero, after he killed himself, the, the, the rumor was he's coming back to life. And so it was, it was Nero. And then it was Mikhail Gorbachev, and that thing on his head was the mark of the beast. And then it was Ronald Wilson Reagan, because all of his names have six letters, 666. It must be him. And every other U.S. president has ever lived, and all kind of different things that go along the way. But here's the thing we must not miss. It makes sense that those who, who set themselves up against God in Christ would have something symbolically written on their heads. Yet what they have on their heads or on their hands is not the number of completion. It's not the number seven. Instead, it's the number of incompletion. It's the number of man, the number six. And don't miss this. Here's what, I, here's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. This beast, the false prophet, the dragon, are presented to us here as the ultimate six. Meaning, they receive the praise of the world, but don't miss it. They're not a seven. They'll never be a seven. The Antichrist is the best man can produce, but he is still a man, and he is not the God-man. He is complete incompleteness. The ultimate of coming up short. Is he good enough to deceive most? Absolutely. Will he be good enough to displace Jesus? Never. Never. So let me close this way. Even now, brothers and sisters, we live in a spiritual world and we are in a spiritual war. And the Antichrist spirit has been and is still alive and well in our world. But let me say this. May it never be alive and well in us. May the Antichrist spirit never be alive in the way you think. Why do we think? Do we think Jesus? Is that our first thought? Is, is that what's consuming our minds? Or is it not? Do we have Antichrist thoughts? Do we have Antichrist actions and, and words that, that we speak? Yes, the Antichrist spirit is alive and well even today, but may it never be alive and well in you and me. May, it never, may the Spirit of Christ be alive and well in us. May we know that greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. And that is true now, and that will be true every day of our lives. Let me end today with the words of Thomas Watson, the great Puritan. Here's what he writes, and it is powerful words. Soon the battle will be over. 
It will not be long now before the day will come when Satan will no longer trouble us. Let me just pause and say praise God for that day. Praise God. Then he says this, there will be no more domination, no more temptation, no more accusation, no more confrontation. Our warfare will be over and our commander, Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield to receive the victor's crown. That day is coming, brothers and sisters, and our cry until that day comes is come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. What he has, I tell you, anything that this world will give you on your best day cannot compare with what Jesus will give you forever. Therefore, come, Lord Jesus. May he come. May he come quickly, as John writes at the end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call the musicians forward, and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let me just say this. Yes, Satan is alive and well. Yes, the Antichrist spirit is alive and well. Yes, the false prophet is, is coming. But we have God as our Father. We have Jesus as our Savior, and we have the Holy Spirit as the one who reveals truth to us even now. And what we have, what we have beats what's coming every day of the week and throughout all eternity. What we have trumps that which is coming. And I pray that we will just give ourselves continually daily to that which we have, to understand the beauty of what we have, and not to, to let ourselves be, be swept away and forget that we are in a spiritual war, war, uh, spiritual war in a spiritual world, and that we would, again, not let this Antichrist spirit, don't let it dictate your mind. Don't, and what I mean by that is this. If you're walking through a difficulty today, is Christ, is Christ there? And yes, he's there, but are you calling on him? Are you depending on him? Are you seeking him? Are you seeking something else that you want? If, if we're seeking something else that we want besides him, it's not a spirit of Christ. Let us seek him first, his kingdom first, and everything else we need will be given unto us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, after this Lord, very deep, very maybe dark, God, difficult message. Yet the truth remains. This isn't dualism, this is domination, and God, you win. You win, you win. And Lord, we are not fighting the enemy from a, a picture that we have to earn victory. Victory has already been earned. We are not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory, from the cross. Lord, help us not to be paralyzed by the enemy, but help us to know, according to your word, that you in us, you're greater than he that's in the world. And the Bible tells us that we submit or we, we uh, submit to you, O oh God. We resist the devil and he will flee from us. God, help us to submit to you, to bow the knee to you. Resist the evil one and watch him flee. And we know he'll come again and may we watch and pray and resist all the more. John writes right in the middle of chapter 13. This is about the perseverance of the saints, the endurance of the saints. Lord, help us to endure. And Lord, come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name.